Well, in our Advent series, kind of anticipating the birth of Christ as we reflect on it this season, uh, we have been looking at some unique and often overlooked ways that the Old Testament prepares for and points the way to Jesus. Kind of started with that image of Simeon taking up uh, Christ in his arms in the temple and saying, now I have seen your salvation. And what was it that helped someone like Simeon anticipate and prepare him for the coming of Christ? And so far, we've seen how the Old Testament prepares the way of the Lord by giving us promises that only Christ can fulfill. We looked at Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament gives us pictures of the work that Christ alone can accomplish. We looked at Zechariah 3 and the priest with dirty clothes and the new clothes that were put on him. And then the Old Testament prepares us for Christ by giving us themes that only find their resolution in Christ. We looked at the theme of the good shepherd in the Old Testament. Well, this morning, we're going to add a fourth way that the Old Testament prepares us for Christ by looking at Psalm 72. So the Old Testament points us to Jesus by giving us songs that can only ultimately be sung about Jesus. That's one of the ways the Old Testament points us to Jesus. So with that in mind, hear God's word as I read from Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May they be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May it be like fruit in Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let me pray before we hear the preaching of the word. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding. And in understanding, you'd help to grow our affections. And in growing our affections, you would shape our wills. Lord, help us to focus on Christ and understand one of the glorious ways that he was anticipated as of old. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, since we're looking at the songs of Israel, the ancient songs, I looked at that in part because I think there's no other time or season of the year where music and song and singing plays a more prominent role than at Christmas time. It seems that as, as soon as you finish the Thanksgiving turkey or, or set aside the leftovers, the Christmas music strikes up, right? It strikes up on every radio station, throughout every store you walk into and in every home. In fact, it's one of the few ways in Florida that you can tell that the time is changing as you go into the department stores and there's different music. And all the various music and songs that we hear during this season very clearly illustrate the effect and shaping influence that music has on us. Music, for one, 
has a very powerful effect on our memory. For example, I would guess that you can remember words that have been set to music far easily than you can remember words that you've read or heard apart from music. Music has a way of cementing things in our memory. If I read off a portion of the lyrics of some of the most famous Christmas songs, I'm guessing all I would have to do is start one of the lines and the vast majority of you could finish those lines. For example, if I began the line, I'm dreaming of a... Yeah, you could finish that line. Remember, we're Presbyterian, so we only respond in our hearts silently, okay? (laughs) Or if I began the line, chestnuts roasting on... Or my personal favorite, you are a mean one. There you go, that's a good one. Or my other personal favorite is grandma got run over. There you go. So music has a powerful way of placing and keeping things in our memory. It also has a powerful shaping influence on our emotions. As the noted Christmas scholar Buddy the Elf said, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loud for all to hear. For example, when we say something like, this song puts me in the Christmas spirit, we're tacitly acknowledging the emotion-shaping power of music. And I'll bet you feel that influence if you hear the song, The Christmas Shoes. You likely have had to reach for a box of tissues in hearing that song before. Or when you hear the song, Last Christmas, I Gave You My Heart, you're probably emotionally cringing inside, and you want to do whatever you can to stop that song from ever being sung again. Or my personal favorite, if you're at a performance of Handel's Messiah, and as the hallelujah chorus is being sung and everyone is singing in their different unison, you feel as if you're hearing the very music of heaven sung by an angelic choir. Music influences and shapes our memory and emotions, and it also shapes our thinking. Music is a very powerful teaching medium for better or for worse. For example, if you grew up public school system like I did, you know Schoolhouse Rock and you know what a conjunction is because of those songs. It's a powerful teaching medium. Or think about its teaching effect on how we view Christmas. Modern Christmas music has taught us to view a real Christmas as a white Christmas with an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose. But as Floridians, you'd be relieved to know that the place where Christmas really started in Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus in its climate is much more like Jacksonville, Florida than it would be St. Paul, Minnesota. There, there's no snow there, rarely ever. And so when you see a nativity scene and there's uh, snow on top of the manger, it's likely that the designer of that nativity set was more influenced by Bing Crosby than he was the biblical story of Jesus. I, I hate to burst your bubble. The shaping influence of music on our memory, our emotions, our thinking is not by accident. These are not unintentional. These are by design. God, as the author of music, has orchestrated these effects in this gift of music that he's given to us. And knowing the shaping influence of music on our memory, our emotions, our thinking, he made his people to be a singing people. And he did that by inspiring a whole hymn book for them in the Old Testament, namely the 150 Psalms. So by giving the nation of Israel these Psalms, the Lord was seeing to it that his word through music would sink into their memory, would shape their emotions, and would inform how they thought and how they lived. So in particular, we're going to focus on Psalm 72. And the Lord gave this psalm to his people to help them sing about and anticipate the arrival of his son. In Psalm 72, in its historical setting, we get to hear a poetic prayer that David composed for Solomon as he yielded up the throne after 40 years of sitting on it. 
And as you look at the lyrics of Psalm 72, one thing that should strike you in these lyrics that I read is the boldness and the grandness of what David composed and prayed for, for his son. I mean, what David composed and prayed for is so lofty and so majestic that many have rightly noted there's no way the actual historical reign of Solomon matches the picture of the king in this prayer. And so we're left with two options with Psalm 72. Either David is employing extreme poetic exaggeration as a father who just wants the best for his son and so he's gonna pray big things and we shouldn't read much more into it than that. Or option number two, we should take seriously the loftiness and majesty of what David wrote and understand that as much as David was writing for Solomon, who he's handing the throne to, he's also looking ahead to someone greater than Solomon, someone who would far exceed Solomon himself. In other words, at this same time that David is offering a prayer for his son, the divine author working in and through David is using this prayer to paint a poetic portrait of a future king for whom the lyrics and how he lives would be perfectly matched together. And so I'm gonna argue for option number two. So after Solomon's reign ended, Psalm 72, as, as far as we understand it historically, was used as a ceremonial song and prayer at the coronation service of Israel's subsequent kings. So each time the people would sing this song at this coronation service, their memory would be stirred of God's promises of what the king would be like, what the kingdom would look like, that a royal son would come from David's line, that he would sit on the throne. And then their longing to see that king and enjoy the fruits of his kingdom would be reawakened. And then their thinking about what a true king should look like in his character, in his conduct, would also be reinforced. And so each coronation service, that they sing this psalm, there's, there's this little flicker of hope that lights. Could this one who we're singing to at his coronation service, could this be the king that Psalm 72 is about? And then as the various kings of Israel rose and lived and fell away, that flicker of hope was quickly snuffed out because each time they sang the song and watched the king, how he lived and acted, the lyrics and the lives of the king did not match up. There was discord in the music. It is not until the arrival of great David's greater son that the song and the one to whom it is sung finally form a perfect match. So we're going to walk through some of the lyrics of this psalm and see how it leads us to Jesus. The first thing David does in the opening of this psalm is give us a poetic portrait of the perfect king's character, the ideal king's character. So look at verses 1 and 2. So he starts this psalm. Give the king your justice, O God and your righteousness to your royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. David is praying in understanding that character is destiny. And so he prays that the king in his character and conduct would be an image and reflection of God's character for the people. Because that's what the ideal king was supposed to be. The ideal king would be one that the people could look up to and they could imitate that king as he imitated the Lord. And so the king's job in his office was not just to uphold justice in the nation, to uphold the law of God for the people. He was to be a replication of the law of God in his own life for the people as well. And so this is why when Moses, earlier on in Israel's history, was preparing the nation of Israel to enter the land, he knows that they're going to have a king one day. And so in Deuteronomy 17, he gives instructions for what the king should do day one in the office. What he should do day one in the office is take some parchment, take 
an ink an inkwell, and he should write his own personal handwritten copy of the law of God, the first five books of Moses. And in this way, the king would meditate on, would let sink into his memory, shape his thoughts, how he should conduct himself as a king. And he would be a picture of the lyrics of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. A king was to be saturated with God's word so that he could lead his people in godly character. And thus the perfect king would be one who would have impeccable, uncompromising character. Well, next, as we move in Psalm 72, it paints for us a poetic portrait of the perfect king's reign, not just his character, but his reign. So look at verses five to seven and pay careful attention to the time markers that David uses in describing the reign of this king. Verse five, may they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. And then jump down quickly to verse 17 in Psalm 72. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. So as David is composing this for his son and thinking ahead to the future kings of Israel, he's considering what objects can I use that would represent something that is permanent, perpetual, endures forever. And so the idea strikes him, I'll use the sun and the moon. Because at that time, the two most stable, durable, constant objects that one could think of were the sun and the moon. Nothing could surpass their permanence. And so by using these as metaphors, David intends to convey that the perfect king would have a reign that would never cease, that would be unending forever. And so surely, with these lyrics, David's overstepped his bounds, right? Does he not believe in term limits? Is he not a good Republican? Does he not know the inevitability of death? Is he so foolish to think that God will answer this portion of his prayer? Well, we have to understand that lying just beneath the surface of what David is praying in Psalm 72 is a promise that God has given him in 2 Samuel 7. As David's reign was coming to an end, probably before he wrote this psalm, God makes this promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David is not out of line. In fact, he is walking in step with scripture. He's merely taking God's word to him and praying it back to God in this prayer. But there's one big promise, or there's one big problem with the promise that underlies this psalm. Every king keeps dying. Every king in Israel is six feet under and has an obituary. Their reigns are only ever temporary because the kings themselves suffer from sin's terminal consequence. The wages of sin is death. And in fact, when the apostles are preaching in Acts, they even pick up on the Psalms and the promise of the eternal king, and they say, it can't be David or it can't be the other kings because his tomb is marked. We know where his body lays. And yet the tomb of Christ is empty. And so herein, with this promise of forever, unending, here's one of the clues that the Old Testament gives us, which forces us to look beyond the historical kings in the nation of Israel to a greater king to come, whose reign will be stronger than death itself. So following on from this, Psalm 72 paints for us 
a poetic portrait of the perfect king's realm. So look with me at verses 8 to 11, where David moves from describing the perfect king's kind of time span to now describing his geographical span. Starting in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and enemies, his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. David is very intentional on in how he writes this section here because he uses geographical locations known to Israel at that time that cover all four points of the compass. And he does this to pray that the king's realm would be universal just as he used the sun and the moon to describe that the king's reign would be unending. So he lists place from the north, the south, the east, and the west, symbolizing that the ideal king, the perfect king's realm, would cover every single corner of the earth. And he doesn't just pray for his reign to cover the whole earth. He prays for it to include the whole earth as well. So he mentions the remotest Gentile regions known at that time as coming to this king, rendering tribute, and bringing gifts, even gifts of gold, to the king. These are expressions of worship and devotion. He, he pictures the nations streaming in like, like rivers feeding into a great ocean. And they're coming to worship this king, to pay tribute to him because this is the king of kings. Well, in Solomon's day, we catch just a brief glimpse of this reality. Solomon's reputation is growing and spreading and expanding as the borders are expanding, as his wealth is expanding, as his wisdom is growing, such that the queen of Sheba makes the long journey to visit Solomon to see firsthand if the reports about him are true. And after meeting Solomon, here's what she said. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, not even the half of it was told to me. And so there is a brief glimpse of this in Solomon's life, and yet it's a short-lived glimpse. Because as much as Solomon did to expand the borders of Israel, we know the second half of his story because he did even more to shrink the borders of Israel than anyone in his day because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And so in singing these lyrics about a king with uncompromising character, an unending reign and a universal realm, the people... When they looked at Solomon, and then they looked at subsequent kings after that, Josiah and others, they were forced to look beyond those kings with these lyrics and hope for a greater king to come. And yet, before the royal psalms, like Psalm 72, would welcome a king who matched the lyrics, there was a significant period of time in the nation of Israel when songs like this were set aside and they were scarcely sung by the people because they couldn't bring themselves to sing it. Listen to the opening lines of Psalm 137. It kind of describes the, the day the music died, as it were, in Israel. It says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What the psalmist is reflecting on in these words is some of the darkest days in Israel's history because the, the kingdom is in ruins because of Babylon. The throne is empty because of Babylon and they're now exiled captors in the land of Babylon as they've been taken over by a foreign power. And so the idea being communicated during the season 
is that Israel's sorrow was so great that they couldn't even write songs of lament, let alone sing the old songs of Zion that were uh, of a much grander, loftier display. And so they set the songs aside and didn't sing. And fittingly, the period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the new. So you have Malachi, the, the last prophet we know of, 430 BC, and then the events surrounding the birth of Christ marking the beginning of the New Testament. That span of time is referred to as the 400 years of silence. Now, why is it called that? Well, it's called that because during this 400-year time from Malachi to the announcement of the angels of the birth of Jesus, no new prophet is raised up, no new prophecy of a king is given, and no new inspired song is composed for the people to sing. But then we turn our Bibles page to the Gospel of Luke specifically. You can turn there to Luke 1 with me if you want to follow along. And as we turn the page of our Bibles to the New Testament, to a, a, a gospel account like Luke, when he starts to describe the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding it, the silence of those many centuries, those 400 years, is broken by singing. Singing is what interrupts the silence in the Gospel of Luke. Because with the birth of Jesus, what's happening is the old songs of Israel are being sung anew. For example, in response to the angelic announcement that Mary would give birth to the son who would take up the throne of David, who would reign over the house of Jacob forever and establish a kingdom that would never end, as the angel had announced to her, what does Mary do in response? She sings a song with lyrics like this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. So Mary, in in this announcement about this son, her memory is stirred, her heart is moved as she thinks about the old songs in light of this new gift, this new son who is to be born. And then likewise, in Luke 1, starting verse 68, Zechariah, the father of John, sings a new song because his son is going to be the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord in a unique way. So he writes lyrics like this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Zechariah as well, thinking on this new thing that God is doing, sings the old songs afresh in a new way. And then you have the most well-known song, probably in Luke's gospel. It's the angelic choir singing to the shepherds who are watching their flocks by night. And they sing in light of the announcement of the son who was born in Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So new songs are being sung because the old songs are becoming true. New songs are being sung because the old songs are becoming true. And so God is doing a new and greater work in their midst because with the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, the lyrics of their songs of old and the one to whom they're going to be sung are now going to form a perfect match. So the old songs are being sung because they're coming true. And even the very lyrics of the old songs that they would sing are being fulfilled in some detail in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. So one of the things that Psalm 72 prayed for, prophesied about, that they sung about, was that the nations would come and bring gifts to this king, that even the gold of the Gentiles would come and be offered to this king. Well, when Matthew, in his gospel, records the events of Jesus' birth, he includes the fact that Gentile wise men from the east 
traveled specifically because they were looking for him who is born king of the Jews. And when they find him, what do they give him but royal gifts fit for a king? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Matthew records that. So his primarily Jewish audience, who's well-versed in the Old Testament, would put together the lyrics of Psalm 72 and the events of these Gentile magi coming from the east to Jesus and in wonder and amazement see that the very lyrics of the songs that they've grown up singing are being fulfilled in the birth of great David's greater son. Well, the next time in the life of Jesus that we hear mention of singing is at the Last Supper. So the Passover meal that Jesus eats with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion is the next time we hear mention of singing in the gospel accounts. So Jesus explains to his disciples as they take this old Passover meal tradition, that this old meal is taking on a new meaning. It says, this bread that you've eaten is now my body which is given for you. And this cup which you take is now my blood poured out in the forgiveness of your sins. And then how do they conclude that meal? They conclude it by singing a psalm together. That Jesus leads them in singing the old songs. So again, the old songs are being sung anew because all of their lyrics are finally coming true. And yet, ironically, after Jesus sings with the disciples, the one to whom the songs are about, the one who leads his people in singing, for a time would cease his singing ways. Instead, after singing with the disciples at the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, Jesus would be silent, as it were. Like a sheep before it shears, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he would open not his mouth, as Isaiah 53 prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Jesus would be silent when they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. He would be silent when they placed a crown of thorns on his head. He would be silent when the soldiers jeered at him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He would be silent when the crowds mocked him. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe in him. When Jesus does momentarily break his silence, it's with the lyrics of lament on his lips. Psalm 22 my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He not only sings the joyous songs of Israel, he sings truly and fully the songs of lament of Israel as well. Why is the king who all the songs of Israel are truly and ultimately about enduring all this silently? Jesus silently endured all this because he is a king like no other king. No king has left a higher place of honor and entered into a lower place of humiliation and shame. In humility, King Jesus silently endured the punishment that you and I deserve so that he could put a new song in our mouths. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever and ever. In Jesus... All the old songs come true because by his death, we are made new. This is what Jesus is silent for. And so in this season of Christmas, it's good to look back. It's good to look back and remember the wonder and amazement of his first coming. But our looking back should also move us to look forward to his coming again. When we will sing with all the redeemed, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. 
for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Songs like these should renew our memory with the promise of his coming and return. They should stir our feelings with longings for his appearing and they should teach us, they should shape our thinking to live out our days in light of that coming day. Let's pray for God to do that work in our hearts.